Now, there are many places that will have been meeting today across the world that call themselves churches. Sadly, not all of them really are churches. So, what would you look for to tell what is a church and what isn't? What are the marks of a true church? What are the marks of a true church? Now, in the 1500s, when there was that great rediscovery of the gospel that we now call the Reformation, and believers broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, they faced this issue of, well, what is a true church? Before, it had seemed straightforward. There was just this one church, the Roman Catholic Church. But now they realised, well, it's not as simple as that. So how do we tell what is a true church? And they identified what they called three marks of a true church. And this evening, I'm not going through those three marks of a true church, but one of those three... One of those three was, it carries out church discipline. Think of that. They just identified three marks of a true church. And they said, one of the marks is, it carries out church discipline. What do you think of that? Now, these people had thought deeply about the Bible. They cared deeply about the gospel. They weren't just these hard men. They were men who devoted their lives to the spread of the gospel and the glory of Jesus. And they said, church discipline matters that much. Now, I wonder, do you like the sound of discipline? Did you, as a child, like being disciplined? Well, a better question would be this. Do you like children who are never disciplined? What are children like who, well, they are never, they never have their will crossed, their parents never say no to them, they're never punished, they always get their way. Do you like such children? Ah, they're a pain, aren't they? Spoiled. We might call them brats. Well, we are the children of God and we need discipline. And the church is the family of God and needs discipline. And so we're learning tonight about church discipline. Now, you might wonder, why now? Why are we doing this now? Has something suddenly come up since last Sunday? And I've decided this. No. It's not something has come up. It's not there's someone to get at. It's quite simple. We're in a series on 1 Timothy. And church discipline came up back in chapter 1, the last verse of chapter 1. But I felt like we'd had enough controversial subjects at that point, and I ducked the issue. And then it came up again in chapter 5, last week, the verses we were looking at. And I thought, no ducking the issue any longer. It's come up twice, and... If a church isn't taught about discipline, it won't do it. If the issue comes up and you haven't already been taught about it, it's too late. You can't really deal with it there and then. And if it doesn't do discipline, well, it's failing to obey the Bible. So we're being taught this tonight because it's come up in our series, not because an issue has come up over the last week or there's anyone to have a dig at. Now, discipline is a big subject It should include being disciplined people and learning from the Bible and practising the one-anothers of the Bible, love one another, be humble to one another, encourage one another. It's, It's a very broad subject and I'm only going to be dealing with it in quite a narrow way, only one area of it and only introducing that. So I'm not claiming too much for this. And we're going to have, as our main passage for this, Matthew chapter 18. So, if you've got a Bible, would you turn again to Matthew chapter 18? Although we are going to look at other places also, and most of them will come up on the screen, although not all of them. And as usual, 
If it helps you follow, it says on the notice sheets what the structure of this is going to be. And we start this message, which I'm calling Gospel-Shaped Church Discipline. I hope you'll see it's all shaped by the Gospel. It's not something to be considered separately from the Gospel. And we start it with a Gospel-shaped response to sin in other people. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, let's just take that to start with. If your brother sins against you, what should you do if a fellow Christian sins against you? Matthew 18 tells us, but it doesn't tell us everything. So before we get to into Matthew 18, we must remember some other things the Bible says. And a good place to start, which should come up on the screen, is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. That famous passage about love, which tells us love is not easily angered, it does not keep, it keeps no record of wrongs. If someone sins against you, is it something you should overlook? Often, yes it is. Just something to overlook. Just something to not get provoked about and not to keep a record in your mind about. It's something to just pass over. Often it's something unintentional, often it's a slip-up, often it's a one-off, something you should just move on from and put out of your mind and determine not to think about it. If you can't do that, then you must do Matthew 18. But there isn't a middle category of a sin where it's not big enough to talk to them about, but it's too big for me to let go of. You let go of it and you put it out of mind, Or you deal with it in the way that Matthew 18 says. Here's another place we must bear in mind before we get into Matthew 18. Luke 17. Luke 17. And you might recognise that Matthew 18 says virtually the same thing. But there's a reason why we're looking at Luke 17. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent... Forgive him. Sometimes a sin shouldn't be overlooked. Sometimes it's something that person needs to be aware of so they can guard against it. And Jesus said, be loving, both by talking about it to to that person, not to other people, and by forgiving. And he sets here a very high standard for forgiving. Imagine, Alex has sinned against me, he's been slandering me, he's been saying things behind my back to other people that are against me. And I find this out, and I say, Alex, you really shouldn't have done that. He says, yeah, I know, I'm sorry. And I say, I'm glad you said that, I forgive you. But then he goes and does it again, and he's speaking to me behind my back again. And I say, Alex, what are you doing? And he says, yes, I'm really sorry. And I say, Alex, I forgive you. And then he goes and does it again. I said, Alex, what is going on? He says, yeah, I really just can't get control of my tongue. I'm really sorry. I say, well, I'm glad you've admitted it again. I forgive you. Guess what? He goes and does it again. And he comes to me this time and says, I I don't know if you found out, but I've gone and done it again. I said, I'm glad you came and spoke to me about that. And again, of course, I forgive you. He goes and does it again. Oh, Alex, what are you playing at? Yes, please will you help me? Please will you pray for me? I've really got to get a grip of this. Well, I'm glad you recognise that. I forgive you. Do you know how many times we're up to? Five. We haven't even gone up to seven yet. 
Did it seem like quite a long time? We haven't even got up to seven. We're only on five. Would you have kept going that long? Really, would you have kept going that long? Well, Jesus says, yes, you must. You say seven times, Alex can't really mean he's sorry. Seven times? Are there sins you've sinned against God seven times? I think far more than seven times. Do you expect God to believe that you're sorry and to forgive you? It's interesting, remember we're looking at this because of one, it's come up in 1 Timothy. It came up at the end of chapter 1. But before it comes up at the end of chapter 1, just a couple of verses before, 1 Timothy reminds us of, it's got this wonderful phrase, the unlimited patience of Christ Jesus. Before you get on to people being disciplined, you get this, the unlimited patience of Christ Jesus. And before we get into Matthew 18, we have to remember the unlimited patience of Christ Jesus and we have to show it to others, however many times they fall and then come and say sorry. What though about someone who sinned and it's not against you? That's different from Matthew 18, if they've sinned but it's not against you. Well, most of the time it's none of our business. The vast majority of the time, it's just none of your business. Keep your nose out of it. But sometimes we should take action. Galatians 6 verse 1 tells us that. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Now notice it's not a one-off sin. It's not a slip-up. It's someone trapped in a sin. It's a repeated pattern. It's got a hold of them. And if we are loving people, we'll want to help them because that's a bad place to be, trapped in a sin. And if we are wise people, we won't be too quick and self-confident about wading in. Now, I notice that chapter 6, verse 1 doesn't say, if you're the elders, go and do it, as if no one else can. It doesn't say that. And I'm not claiming the elders are the only spiritual people. But the elders are the obvious people who are told to shepherd and care for the flock although they may involve others in doing that. But there is a warning here about don't be too quick and overconfident about wading in. It's not for everyone to do. Now, with those things in mind, we can get into Matthew chapter 18. So we've had there a little bit about a gospel-shaped response to sin in others. Now we have a gospel-shaped attempt to help a fellow Christian who's fallen into sin. What if someone sins against you and it's not a little thing that can be overlooked? It's not a one-off that can be ignored. Or they've expressed no repentance. They won't come to you and say sorry for it. What should you do then? Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. You go and speak gently, carefully, lovingly. And if there is expression of repentance, great. You must forgive and put it out of your mind. You must forgive and put it out of your mind and determine not to keep raking it up. What if there isn't any of that? Verse 16. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's a quote from the Old Testament about 
properly dealing with things in the context of God's people, Israel, the Old Testament church. Now, you take someone else along, just one or two other people, and, and they listen and they see what, what they think of what's going on, and they might listen, they might tell you, look, I don't think this really is a sin. I think you're making a mountain out of a molehill. This is just something to forget and move on. Well, if they do, say that, do so. Forget and move on. But that other person might agree with you. Yes, there is something needs to be addressed here and might help to encourage the person who sinned to be sorry for it. Well, that's great. Again, you must forgive and put it out of mind. You must. But he, if he or she still won't repent, we're into verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So other people are brought in and involved. Now, before we get into the second half of verse 17 and what happens next, notice what Jesus tells us to do here. He's telling us to seek repentance. Remember, I've called this a gospel-shaped attempt to help a fellow Christian. Out of love for your brother or sister, because sin is damaging and you don't want them damaged by it, seek repentance. Jesus is telling us, seek reconciliation. Out of love for your brother or sister, because you want to be in good fellowship and there not to be a rift. So seek reconciliation. And Jesus is also telling us, safeguard reputation. Again, out of love for your brother or sister. Notice here, there's this emphasis on keeping it as private as possible. First of all, you go and speak to them. No one else need know. If that doesn't work, well, you go and... You involve one or two, but only one or two others. If that doesn't work, well, more will need to know, but not until then. You don't spread it to those who don't need to know. Here's an example. What do you think of Sir Cliff Richard? I don't mean his music, but what's the biggest thing he's been in the news for in recent years? Well, a police investigation into whether he was guilty of abuse or not. And it was spread across the news, wasn't it? Before any conclusion had been made, in fact, the BBC helicopters were able to hover over his home and watch and broadcast the police getting involved and tell everyone what it was about. And people all jumped to their own conclusions before the truth was discovered. And even when he was cleared, many people still thought, well, he's a really odd chap, isn't he? And there's no smoke without fire and someone's reputation gets tarnished. But reputations are valuable. And they are easily, permanently damaged. So Jesus says here, out of love for others, we must try to get sins addressed and fallouts resolved as quietly as possible. Remembering there is often another side to the situation. Things could be quite different from how they appear to you. So I hope you're seeing already that what Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 isn't a nasty thing to try to avoid. It's a loving action that reflects the gospel. We've had a gospel-shaped response to sin in others, a gospel-shaped attempt to help a Christian who's fallen into sin, and then thirdly, a gospel-shaped insistence on repentance. Now, what if the person still won't listen? What if the person still won't show any sign of repentance? Let's read verse 17 again. 17. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, a thing that might confuse us a little here is we heard this morning about the tax collector in the temple. And you may think of how Jesus welcomed tax collectors, but that's not what he's meaning here. He's speaking in this Jewish context where he's taking two groups of people who were outsiders in his day, the pagans and the tax collectors. And he's saying, treat the person who refuses to repent as an outsider, outside God's kingdom, outside the church. Now that is a very solemn thing to do. And notice, it isn't to be done without this process first. We mustn't individually decide to freeze someone out because we've decided that person is a hypocrite, that person isn't genuine. You know, that does happen in churches. I know of cases of it happening where a person has just decided, I think that person isn't genuine, I'm giving the cold shoulder. It's not for any of us to do on our own. It has to have Matthew 18 happen first. And notice when it is done, it's not because of the initial sin. It's because of the refusal to repent. No one is frozen out, however big the initial sin, if there is repentance. It depends not on what happened then, it depends on is there now repentance. And notice, although this started as an issue between two individuals, it's Because someone's refused to repent, it's become an issue for the church as a whole. The whole church is to treat him or her as an outsider. And that follows from the nature of the church. What is the church? What's what's the way it's most commonly described in the Bible? A family. And you can't have a family where one person is treated by some as an outsider and by others as, yes, you're part of the family. It doesn't work. And that follows from the nature of the gospel. Refusal to repent puts you outside of God's kingdom. That follows from the context as well. If you look at verse 18, Jesus follows it up by speaking about the authority of the church. It's something he's, he's already said in chapter 16 and called it there the keys of the kingdom. It's a matter of the church's authority. And it follows also from some other passages in the New Testament where we see examples of something a little like this happening. Let's look at one of them now. This won't come up on the screen because there's quite a bit to see in it. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It would be a help if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Jesus has set what his church should do, and here we have something like it happening once his church has got started. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. And then Paul reproves the church in Corinth because they're proud of themselves while they've got reason to be so ashamed. And then verse 4. Verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan. It's interesting, that's the very same phrase as in 1 Timothy, which has prompted uh, prompted us to consider this today. 
Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. What does that mean in practice? Uh, Move on to verse 11. Now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Now here we have a slightly different situation from Matthew 18 because it's not a fallout between people. It's a person being clearly and terribly immoral. And this is, this is clearly a big sin. But we must be careful about saying the issue is how big the sin is. Notice in verse 11, Paul tells them various other people not to associate with. Slanderers, drunkards, greedy people. I wonder, would you say all of these are big sins? Or how would you categorise what's a big enough sin? If someone is refusing to repent, I can't imagine a situation where we say, you're refusing to repent, but the sin isn't big enough for us to take any action. We'll turn a blind eye to it. So the issue is, is it clear and definite that it is a sin? And is the person refusing to repent? Sometimes we might suspect a sin. Sometimes we might think, hey, he's playing football on a Sunday. That's, well, you might think that's a sin, but it's not clear and definite that it's a sin. It's got to be clear and definite and an ongoing refusal to repent. And in this situation of clear and definite sin, Paul tells the whole church to take action. Verse 4, it's, it's all of them, just like in Matthew 18. It's interesting, isn't it, in verse 5, verse 4 he says, when our Lord Jesus is present with you. Where did he get that idea from? Oh, it's there in Matthew 18. And he tells them to expel the wicked man and make clear he's an outsider. And he tells them, don't just do this in theory. Don't just have your membership list, his name's crossed off, okay. No, everyone is to make clear by their actions that they don't regard this man as part of the church. How are we to do that in practice? Well, verse 11 says, do not associate with such a person. Don't even eat with him. Now, the emphasis here is on not treating the person as part of the church. You still say hello if you met in the street, because I hope you say hello to anyone you meet in the street. Well, I'm a southerner, so I don't so much, but (laughs) you people in the far north in Loughborough do. But I hope we're friendly to our neighbours. So we're still neighbourly to people. If they're in your family, I presume you'd still eat with them. The emphasis here is on not treating the person as part of the church. Praying together, eating the Lord's Supper together, signs of close fellowship together. Because they are not acting as part of the Lord's church. And, And for church discipline to work, it needs the whole church to treat the person in this way. When I was a teenager, there was a very sad case in the church I was at. Someone at the church behaved very badly in his workplace in an ongoing way and wouldn't repent of it. I mean really badly. I'm not going to tell you the details. It wasn't a minor slip-up. And a refusal to repent, and in the end had to be put out of the church. 
And I remember as a teenager noticing people who previously hadn't had much to do with this person going out of their way to spend time with him and to show they are welcoming to him. And it is little wonder that he continued not to repent because he was getting the message, we accept you, we are still in fellowship with you and we think this church discipline's got it wrong. In a different context, in a a response to a different sin, Paul said this, can we have two Thessalonians up? If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him, do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. It's a slightly different situation, and the person here doesn't seem to be actually completely put out of the church, but we see there is action taken to show the person there's a serious issue. We're not just speaking words here. You really need to take action to deal with this ongoing sin. And when we do this, it expresses the gospel. Because it says, however respectable you are, whatever your background and popularity in the church, however small you think your sin is, and however long ago it was, If you are unrepentant, it brings separation from God and therefore separation from his family. And church discipline says, and this isn't just a talk to store in your head and go away and ignore, something's going to happen about this. But church discipline also says this, however big your sin, however repeated, however recent, however shameful and public it is, If you are repentant, you are accepted by God. You are welcomed by God, and so you're accepted and welcomed by his family. And not having this sin held in reserve with us still casting suspicion on you. So I hope you can see, here we have a gospel-shaped insistence on repentance that displays the gospel. That it's not just words we speak, it's something we really believe and act on. Lastly, we've got a gospel-shaped attitude as we do this. Now, our attitude as we do this is so important. So I'm going to run through some ways we must have a gospel-shaped attitude as we do it. First of all, it's for correction, not revenge. Do you like stories or films where there's a bad guy and he gets it in the end? There's something so satisfying. There's something so unsatisfying in stories where they don't get it in the end. I really like revenge. And when people hurt us, or we're outraged by their sin, we can want them shown up. We can want revenge, and we can dress it up in spiritual-sounding language, but it is wrong. We just read in 2 Thessalonians that that the aim is to persuade the person to repent. Even with this man that was so wicked in Corinth, The aim and the expectation was this would cause him to repent. And thank God we've got two Corinthians that says, and he did repent and was welcomed back in. And that means this is to be done prayerfully because the aim is heart change. We're aiming to be God's tool as he changes hearts. So remember it's done for correction. It's nothing, we must not have any attitude of revenge or showing someone up. It must be done with humility. 
something's gone very wrong if we do it from a pedestal up here, above correction ourselves. We must do it remembering Jesus said, take the plank out of your own eye before you make an attempt to take in the speck out of someone else's. It's to be done, this is an obvious one, it's to be done with love. Now, imagine you see a child in the street that you don't know at all and this child is really misbehaving and you go up and you give the child a smack. Is that going to go down very well? Probably 50 years ago you'd be alright doing that. But it's, it's not a good idea, is it? I'm not recommending that. But if your own, if your own child knows you love her and experiences you care for her and knows that how you encourage her but she misbehaves, a smack may be appropriate and helpful because the context is completely different. And so also church discipline needs to be in the context of the church being a family, a loving family where people are encouraged and corrected, appreciated and rebuked. A loving family does that sort of thing. And so church discipline has got to be in that context, otherwise we can never expect it to work. And here's another attitude it needs. It needs to be done under Christ's headship. It's done recognising it's his church. And it's his church, so we cannot pursue discipline in areas where he doesn't say to. We can't rebuke people for not fitting in with our agenda or for not agreeing with our enthusiasms or our plans for the future of the church. But because he's head, it also means we cannot neglect discipline if it's an area where he says that we should do it. Because it's his church. It's not just about keeping us comfortable or keeping on board as many people as we can because you know whenever you have church discipline, there are likely to be people who leave because they don't like it. No, but it's not just keeping our club going. He's the head and it's about obeying him and making him known through a church that reflects him. So it's gospel-shaped in its approach to when others sin, in its attempts to help others, in its insistence on repentance, and above all it must be in the attitude we have as we do it. And as we do all this, remember, actions speak louder than words. Now, in our preaching, we declare a gospel that is radical, we declare that however religious you are and however respectable you are, you're outside God's kingdom if you're not humbly repenting and believing. And we declare that however sinful you are and however bad you've been, you're inside God's kingdom if you are humbly repenting and believing. Now, that is radical. And it's hard for people to believe that God really works like that. And to many people it just sounds like so many words and yeah, but you don't really operate like that. It's just the in guys are in and the out guys are out. But we must show, we must show not just by our words but by our actions. We really do believe this gospel. Church discipline is painful. I don't think it's ever unpainful. But it's not nasty. It's a loving way to show that we're a church shaped by this gospel. So let's pray that God would help us to do it. Let's pray.